Crypto is for everyone, not just rocket scientists, venture capitalists, and high IQ developers. Welcome to The Agenda, a Cointelegraph podcast that explores the promises of crypto, blockchain, and Web3, and how regular-ass people level up with technology. One of the most common critiques of the crypto space is that no one in the real world has any actual need or use for cryptocurrency or blockchain technology. Critics say that most, if not all, crypto projects are creating solutions to problems that only exist within the crypto space that have been created by other crypto projects. And that crypto has little to no actual adoption or use cases outside of the crypto bubble. And of course, that the bubble will eventually burst. And I can't really blame anyone who thinks this way, as it does often seem like that. And in my opinion, they're right that most crypto projects don't seem to have any real utility outside of the crypto bubble. On the other hand, there are some projects that have developed products that are actively being used in the real world, yet remain niche in the crypto space, offering an interesting contrast to this common criticism. One such project is Origin Trail, which has racked up a long list of major industry partners, ranging from governments to major corporations and more, and its mission to build a decentralized knowledge graph. And we'll break down what that means in a bit. Origin Trail offers a unique case study on what it means to be an enterprise and adoption-focused project in a space often driven by retail profit-seeking and cyclical hype. So to help us explain what Origin Trail is all about, we are joined today by two of its co-founders, Shiga and Tomash. Welcome to the agenda. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. All right. So before we dig into sort of the broader questions that I want to ask about adoption and enterprises and the likes, I think we should explain to our audience what exactly Origin Trail is and what it does. I know it can be a bit complicated sometimes and not everyone's familiar with knowledge graph technology. So why don't we start by explaining it like you would to maybe your aunt or your neighbor who knows nothing about blockchain. And then you can add on some of the more technical nuance for our listeners who are a little bit more crypto savvy. Yeah, so perhaps with a couple of words, what we are building uh, or what we have built is a trusted knowledge foundation. And uh, why do we need a trusted knowledge foundation in nowadays society? Simply because there is a lot of misinformation flying around us in all spheres of life from you know the products that we buy like the food that we purchase, or I don't know, politician that we support, media that we use to inform ourselves, the medicines that we use. So the whole world is essentially riddled with misinformation. So that's the primary reason for our existence. And uh, what we built here, uh, like I said, is a trusted knowledge foundation, which is based on a technology that is being used both by the, the big companies such as Google, uh, Amazon, or like just about any company you might think of, and it's called Knowledge Graphs. And then as we were developing solutions to help companies essentially bring in more transparency into their businesses and more trust when they were dealing with their clients, with their partners, with consumers, we figured out that there is also another piece of technology which can be very much useful next to the Knowledge Graph. And that technology is called blockchain. And I'm sure you know a lot about blockchain. So what we did, we essentially overlaid decentralized knowledge graph, so knowledge graph over blockchain in order to drive trust into data and information that is being exchanged. And Origin Trail here is the backbone 
that helps you understand whether or not you're reading something that is trusted. One of the important things about origin trials as well, it, it was a always a path validated with adoption that led to a lot of this kind of discoveries or the advancements in the technology itself. So, you know, it, it wasn't, okay, cool knowledge graphs, let's do that. It was actually because we saw that if you want to handle linked data and, you know, our first uh, kind of uh, transparency driven adoption that happened was in supply chains. And you mentioned food, it was actually for food products. And like, there's a lot of different networks built around something like a food supply chain, if we take that as a starting example. And knowledge graphs were really performant at mapping out all this data that was fragmented around these networks. The same way of how Google did that for World Wide Web. So if you look at just plethora of website that exists. It's very nice if you can have something that's a structure that allows you to highlight connections because all these websites essentially are connected and that's where the value lies. It's in the connections. And that's why knowledge graphs were so powerful for what we were doing. And if you look at how would you want to structure a global trusted knowledge foundation, it's highly likely that you want to have connectivity be enshrined in that as much as possible because that's where the value lies. And, you know, when we were looking at how to increase trust, again, it wasn't just because kind of blockchain was cool to use as technology. It's actually pretty hard. So it's not like a really low-hanging fruit to build in, but it provides a lot of value when it comes to trust. When we were looking at the fact that you could have something like a smart contract, so you would have something that's universally executable, program basically through this internet computer. That was cool because that was something that gave us a chance to kind of orchestrate certain behaviors or certain ways of functioning that were trustless, that were without trust. And that element was hugely important for what we were building out in our knowledge foundation. So we said, you know what, like if there, and there was no, nothing existed that would be giving you the values of both sides. And that's how Origin Trail came to be. We open sourced more or less everything we've done so far. And we've connected or we've overlaid it over the decentralized layer and created this decentralized knowledge graph as we know it today. And that was really powerful. So I think it's when you are cons like trying to or fall in the origin trail rabbit hole, it's good to have that uh, just perspective that a lot of the stuff that you see there has been done so because it was driven by challenges and adoption that happened along the way. And I'm sure you've been asked this or talked about this in the past, but the name is definitely, it's a play on the video game, right? Like it has to be, I don't know if you can legally say it is <laughs> or isn't, but that's the first thing I think of for sure. Are you guys gaming fans? Uh, have you had bad experience with dysentery and that's why you chose the name? <laughs> no, and no, I mean, I'm not a gamer. Tomas is, or used to be somewhat of a gamer. And uh, before naming our project Origin Trail, we never knew about, you know, the game that was very popular in the United States, which is the Oregon Trail. It was simply a game of words. And uh, when we developed the first, the first project to allow, you know, for more transparency and trust in food supply chains, we were playing around with uh, the words around origin. And uh, then we were drawing the trail towards farm and, you know, it was a play of words that mostly got us to this name. And I think it's a good name, although some people nowadays would also say that it's a little bit outdated and that Origin Trail not only stands for the origins of food or origins of products, but I think it's still kind of applicable to what we do because at the end of the day, what we're trying to point out for every information, piece of information that you 
are consuming, we would want to point out what's the information provenance. So what's the information origin trail? So I think the name is equally applicable as it was in the beginning when we decided to use the name. It's kind of fun though. Adds like a pop culture layer to it that if you see the name and you are an American and you don't know what the project is, then you're kind of like it catches your eye. And so perhaps it has had an unintentional marketing effect. Yeah, no, it did come up a lot though. I will say that. (laughs) But it was definitely after the fact. Mm. So I guess to get into the wheeze a little bit, can you explain to us what exactly a knowledge graph is, why it's important, and maybe who some of the big players are that use knowledge graphs now and what they use them for? Like I said before, we were kind of getting into it a little bit. It was really popularized by, you know, by Google with their Google knowledge graph. And I think it was their statement or a research paper they put out, which was, um, was things, not strings. And in essence, what knowledge graphs have an up on, let's say, against the relational database or the way kind of we like to look at what the strength of a knowledge graph is, is really in the richness of the context that it provides. So when it comes to connectivity and connections between different entities, here knowledge graphs can be super powerful. So if we look at, okay, we touched upon Google and how they mapped out the whole World Wide Web by creating entities and connections between them. And they're very easily kind of searchable when you're looking for semantic stuff. So you would be looking for something that's a, that has a meaning and you want to find things that are around it. So like, who is Giga? Cool. And then, you know, who is Giga connected to? To Tomas, he's connected to this place of birth. He's connected to this school. He's connected to this company, to this ecosystem. And these connectivities are all very nicely represented in something like a knowledge graph. Similarly, Amazon would use it for wrapping out like products or Let's say your Jonathan's knowledge graph is going to be purchases of X, Y, and Z, and then Thomas purchases X. So because Amazon has your knowledge graph, it'll assume that someone else can have similar knowledge graph and will be equally valuable for them. So they'll be able to do recommendation stuff much more powerfully. Or like Netflix, you know, what to watch, what to binge, similar things and all of them. So you'll bump into this knowledge graph technology where you'll have kind of the need for handling linked connections, a lot of connections between your entities or between data points. And when you look at trying to kind of create a trusted knowledge foundation for things like even now, you know, with AI, which I'm sure we'll be kind of diving deeper into later in the conversation, but it just echoes like you'll have this richness of context. You'll have this richness of semantic information about about the data that you're handling and knowledge graphs are going to give you a big boost in that sense because you'll be even be able to do some inferences. So with things like ontologies, which would be kind of standards of how we're writing certain things in a particular field, let's say in a supply chain, you're going to have an ontology or you're going to even in a particular vertical, you're going to have different ontologies. And if an ontology is that, um, let's say a family tree, you'll be able to infer certain things. If I am the son of my father, then the father of my father is my grandfather. And that's an inference that you can do in a knowledge graph very nicely. So yeah, things like that are powerful in the knowledge graph. And what Origin Trail really does is it builds on that and it really generalizes it to the point where it can have a very wide applicability. And when you map it, when you kind of bring it together with blockchain, you have a trust element, you have something really powerful on your hands. I think a lot of Web2 applications today would not be operational without a knowledge graph. So if you go and use Google, you know, we have knowledge graph behind it. If you want to buy products on Amazon, there's knowledge graph behind it. So in many ways, knowledge graph is one of the most underrated yet 
one of the most important internet technologies out there. Mm -hmm. I have two questions that I'm going to try to roll together into one because I think that they go together. The first part of the question is, why does the knowledge graph need to be decentralized? It sounds like what Google is doing is working just fine for them. So why does something like this even need to exist? And then the second question is, one of the criticisms, the more common criticisms of someone like a Google is that they just, because they have all this information, that they just have this vast repertoire of information and data on people that then they can, they sell to advertisers, they use to advertise against products, they use to advertise products to you that law enforcement or, or governments, let's say a, a corrupt government could theoretically come to Google and get all that information about regular people. So then does decentralizing the knowledge graph have any implications on the sort of privacy and data side of things? Yeah, I think the, the second part uh, following the question, why would we want to decentralize knowledge graph? So the second part you provided, I think it's a very nice articulation of why is it important to look for something better? Why we should not be just happy with things the way they are? And there is, I guess, one overarching reason, but not the only one, which is the value is not shared in equitable manner between, you know, the large companies, uh, Google's, Facebook's, etc. And we're not, you know, bashing here any of the named companies. We even collaborate with uh, companies such as Google to build solutions which use Origin Trial as a backbone, but they still use the advancements that Google has brought to the market. So, but the kind of the underlying problem here is that we're not benefiting from these kinds of technologies because we're not involved. And what we do here, what Origin Trail provides is an ability for anyone to have a stake in the game. Say that you are a creator, you want to have a full control of your content. And I think now the AI age where everybody's using, let's say, open AI, the problem of expropriating or you know slurping your copyright is becoming very, very apparent. You would even have comedians becoming angry and suing big companies like AI for using their work their, you know, stand-up comedy show texts to train their model. And then, of course, you know, that's the reason why all these GPTs are very smart and providing you with all these witty jokes because they've been pre-trained on someone else's work. So apparent problem that arises here is that these kinds of, you know, centralized systems are essentially exploiting your work in order to augment their capacity to generate value for themselves. So this is perhaps reason number one. Perhaps not the most important one, but definitely one of top three reasons. Second one is verifiability of information. Again, they, in the advent of AI for general use, it's becoming quite apparent that artificial intelligence, especially the generative AI, is becoming one of the most potent bullshit generators. Essentially, you would see that generative AI is being used for plethora of you know, different sectors, but at the same time, it's impossible to verify whether or not an output you got from using generative AI can be verifiable. There are some attempts, centralized attempts, to provide kind of evidence as to how the answer was inferred from, but that's still far away from providing a really unbiased check of whether or not something is truly credible or not. And also generative AI is also biased. Someone constructed the rules for the engine that gives you an answer about anything and it can be biased. So the creators are biased. 
So what we do here, and no solution, of course, is perfect, by decentralizing AI, what we give users actually is an ability to verify from which source an answer was extracted from. Or even if you use a generative AI, you can still check what is the information trail and where does that information come from. So again, information provenance is important here. And we're not trying to pretend here that decentralized solutions, that blockchain is a trust engine. It isn't. You still need to trust. You still need to understand what are the inputs because blockchain is not almighty. It's still a garbage in, garbage out engine in a way. But giving people an ability to be able to check the inputs and then perhaps use their knowledge that existed before they started using such system or perhaps uh, being able to check where information is coming from and if these sources are you know, trustworthy, if they're being somehow supported by other evidence or by other people, that it's on them to decide whether or not they will trust something. And things like that do not exist, almost don't exist in a centralized world. You always need to rely on certain centralized authority and then put trust into that centralized authority. So that's kind of the reason number two, verifiability. So going from the value, which is not equitably distributed, and then uh, the verifiability, there is a third reason which we believe is very compelling. And it's uh, simply, we believe that you can derive much more value if you unlock a global engine, which is all human beings getting an ability to equally participate in the knowledge creation. And uh, there is a saying that knowledge is power and knowledge shared is power multiplied. And if we build rails for knowledge to be shared, for knowledge to be created, we believe that we can empower the citizens of the world to start bringing in knowledge into this world encyclopedia. And by sharing that knowledge, they empower someone else and so on and so forth. So we're huge believers in the network effects of the knowledge being created. I still remember the saying that Cynthia is potentia. It's a Latin saying, which essentially means that knowledge is power. And I think that really holds true. And there is another saying, which uh, we believe is highly important here. It's again, getting giving knowledge back to the people or the power of knowledge back to the people, which will bring, you know, much more desired benefits than just simply believing that some central authority is completely fine with to be entrusted with the knowledge and uh, somehow monopolizing value that is being created uh, with the global resource, which is the knowledge. And perhaps going back to the, you know, the whole Web3 movement, what Bitcoin brought is an ability for you to exchange value without central intermediary. And then we went through transitions, then came DeFi, of course, then came Metaverse, etc. And we all kind of desired for Web3 to become something that can deliver benefits to just about any person on this planet. So what we believe is that in this kind of third transition within the crypto, the third revolution, we're going to be seeing knowledge becoming a very important asset that you can essentially hold in your wallet or somehow you can control it and somehow you can also then share it and then you can extract value from it in a similar fashion as you're doing it right now within DeFi by lending tokens, etc. So we believe that knowledge is an asset and by giving people tools to essentially store these assets, to connect these assets, we believe that we can deliver something really useful and remarkable for the people. But again, just to, I'm going to finish my thought here. It is about the people and at the same time, it's about advancing organizations because why organizations, we started our work by working with companies. 
And then we saw that not only we can bring benefits to the companies who are, you know, in turn bringing in more transparency, trust for their consumers, their, you know, the users of their products, we can also empower users. We can empower ordinary people. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of like very exciting projects coming out. One of them is already has seen the daylight. Jonathan, you met Amos in New York. He launched a project, a very interesting project called Trackverse. And Trackverse is an educational and entertainment hub built on the DKG. So, I mean, if you check their website, it's truly captivating. But the real mission behind Trackverse is really to educate people through entertainment and uh, education being done in a way that anyone could participate with their knowledge into the Trackverse and then also contributes not only to the, you know, the entertainment part of the track first, but also to the educational part of it. Right, right, right. That was a lot to unpack. And I, I appreciate that you went into that with such detail. And there was something that kind of grabbed my ear and I wanted to explore a little bit further that you mentioned about AI applications and the need for decentralization within AI applications. So within AI applications, have you seen bias and what are some scenarios where an enterprise client might want to be aware of bias or make an attempt to avoid it? From my view, and I think from the view of most just tech users, AI is such a hidden layer. First of all, it's new, but it's always been there and it's evolving in its ability and capacity and like all of the socialization context, it's becoming more and more kind of like semi-sentient, it seems, or at least capable in holding conversations and like executing tasks or requests from users. But it's still a hidden layer where Google users and chatbot users and other tech users or consumers might not realize that they're interfacing with an AI. So I think that that might make people a bit numb to the implicit bias of devs that could unintentionally be programmed into an AI. So just to go back to the original question, and what sort of AI applications have you seen bias and what are some scenarios where your enterprise clients might want to be aware of bias and, you know, more so emphasize the need for decentralization? Yeah, actually, one of the first steps for us to do something tangible with AI actually stem from like the same consideration that you now have spoken about. So enterprise client really wanted to provide a service to their user, which would be reliable to the extent that their users can always verify how an AI model came to a certain answer. And this is where it became apparent that just by using generative AI, you might be fooling your users into believing something into something that might not have grounding in reality. So what they were looking for, and those were like very beginnings uh, in the beginning of this year, was a kind of a solution that could always point towards a repository that was generated by a certain authority. I'm not going to name a sector, but it's kind of similar to the law industry. So as a lawyer, you would always want to be 100% sure that your claims always have a grounding in certain legal work, precedent cases, in a law. And just using generative AI, you can stumble upon problems. And there was a case of an American advocate of American lawyer that used generative AI to search for precedent cases. And with not a lot of surprise for us right now, generative AI gave him a few 
precedent cases that never existed. And later on, he was fined by a judge for providing claims that were completely unsubstantiated, were completely falsified. So clients such as like important or serious enterprise clients, they want certainty. And even if, you know, they cannot provide a complete and uh, I would say like a very well summarized answer to their users, they always want to provide a substantiated claim to their users. And this is where technologies such as uh, Origin Trail come in because Technologies like this are an engine of trust or engine for clients to be able to see what's the information provenance. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a very exciting topic. It's a big rabbit hole, I guess, uh, because it's, I mean, generative AI has showcased a lot of strength. There's been McKinsey or old Goldman or someone put out what four point something trillions on an annual basis of value added to the world. We're literally getting another Great Britain economy annually to the GDP. It's insane. And it will continue to evolve. It will get stronger. But then also all these challenges are right there with it. So if you're kind of looking out and you know, even bias, but also bias has so many shades, right? Depends on the context, depends on the who is accessing the content and how really what's the judgment call on what how far bias should or shouldn't go or and how is it constructed. And the theme that we constantly kind of come back to or the future that we feel is much more likely to have a positive effect on humanity is based on the premises that Giga was laying out before. So if you can have a global knowledge foundation that is inclusive, where all of the knowledge can be discoverable, that's going to be better because then you're kind of reducing that bias of having some central authority deciding what can or cannot access this network. If you can have verifiability, so the provenance of information, hugely important because then you can filter and then you are in the, behind the driving wheel of that bias or not, but you know who you trusted, not just the kind of as a source. And that trust can be based on social trust. It can be based on authority trust. It can be based on whatever it makes sense in a given context, but you need that foundational layer to allow it to happen, right? And the ownership is so key because the same thing will happen is that we need, there was a good question by Professor John Dominguez on it. We were talking in one of the semantic web conferences in Germany. He asked, who's going to be the Kim Kardashian of data? Like who's going to be the first one to leverage the ownership aspect or that capability to really make a showcase of like even a business model for the future. And here is where it really gets exciting because what AI can do, it can consume a lot of this, if it's quality input, it can provide a lot of quality value from it and it's able to consume a lot of it. So that's the, I think the, one of the big differences that we've had from before and here ownership is going to be so huge because you'll just, the effort in creating contextual, semantically rich inputs, knowledge is going to be rewarded because there's going to be a business logic behind it. So yeah, those three components make it a much more likely future and a much better future versus, let's say, some alternatives that you were going through, like having a single entity, you know, you can have good people working for it as well. It's not like bashing any particular thing, but just as a concept, having a single entity or having a lot of kind of walled gardens happen and all of these things will contribute to a less optimal kind of end game when, when we're looking at it. And this end game needs to be decided now. So like, we need to work on this work on this now. We cannot wait for 10 years for just to kind of let things kind of run loose. 
but rather work on these important questions like bias, like uh, how do we feel a future should be created, basically. Right, right. Excellent. That's a great explanation. I can kind of conceptualize how these ideological and philosophical points, factors, objectives that you've spoken about here create a better world, a more ideal world, a place where information can be trusted, where everyone or those who care about creating information are doing it in a way that's ethical and it's beneficial to everyone who then needs to consume that information or learn from it or verify it. I I get that. And you mentioned that this is a huge input and making sure that this input is done well with good intention will lead to better output that everyone in society or globally benefits from. But you've also mentioned that this input is actual energy and therefore the output needs to manifest as a tangible reward that's beyond kind of the ideological and the philosophical, which brings me to the topic of tokens. So a lot of projects out there have a token And the view of most regulators today is that the existence of a token is an unlicensed or unregistered securities issuance. And for a lot of enterprise solutions-focused projects, I've noticed that enterprise and corporate clients don't need the token or they're opposed to it due to either the potential regulatory trouble or the fact that they require a permissioned siloed blockchain not something that's purely decentralized. So what's your view on this? What is the purpose of Origin Trails token? And does it have utility for retail holders or is it designed to be a conduit for enterprise clients? No, that's another good topic. (laughs) Tokens are a piece of technology, you know, akin to how a knife is a tool can be used to cook up some good stuff, could also be used as an assault thing, right? And in that sense, tokens aren't just across the board the same thing just because they're kind of using the same technology. Some of them that have maybe, and again, this by no means is kind of like either a legal uh, advice or something like that, but it's just a, a frame of thinking, right? So if you're using a token to mimic or to create something that it is a security, then you know it's likely going to fall within that and it, it's going to make sense. But there's also a utility tokens, which aren't a security. They don't, again, all the possible kind of <laughs> disclaimers here that make sense should be applied, but there definitely are tokens that are clear utility and tokens. And this is what the Origin Trail has been set out to be from the get-go. So literally from the 2017 you know, white paper and immediately kind of also receiving that utility, it was always there to be as a fuel for the network and really boxed in on that. So it's not a, in that sense, a token that would be particularly for like a particular group of users oh, this is just for the retail or this is just for the enterprise. This is for the users of the Origin Trail network. And it has that utility that's tied into making the network stronger and making the network work and then function. And then that's basically it. And if, you know, Jigan and myself are somehow taken by aliens tomorrow, that token is going to have the exact same utility that it has today <laughs> or that it had when it was kind of launched because it's, it is there as a part of this decentralized network. And if, you know, we are talking about this knowledge foundation throughout the whole time, so if you do want to add to that or you want to publish your knowledge assets onto the decentralized knowledge graph, you will use track to compensate the network for allowing you to 
put that knowledge asset on the network. And similarly, on the other side, you will have infrastructure runners who will use track as a collateral towards the publisher so that they will do their job well. And that's it, right? It's vastly different to what would be to having a share of a particular company or investment uh, instrument um, in that sense. And But they have tremendous value because they are an ecosystem glue. They are what makes the vision go also forward because they are the part that kind of keeps the, the network growing and getting stronger day in, day out. But of course, there's also going to be others. And there might be this maturation process or whatever we want to call it, in which there's going to be this and that's going to happen. Like how regulators, I'm not really envious to their positions either. It's not very easy if someone, you know, puts me, be a charge to create the regulation. It's not an easy task by any means. So there's different kind of jurisdictions that go about it in different ways. For us, it's kind of obviously looking at how it's developing and how the understanding of this field is going on in, in different parts of the world. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the next hundred years of development of the Origin Trail ecosystem around track token and how that all of it is going to play out. So yeah, I hope that answered. Yeah, that was great. That was good. Because I know some projects are very explicit about the token as a conduit for data transfer for enterprise clients. It's not something that retail investors should speculate on. There's other projects in the Polkadot ecosystem that have suggested that holders of token, even though it's being used by enterprise clients, will receive some sort of revenue share or benefit from da-da-da-da. But I, I don't think you need to answer those questions because that's regulatory, it's speculative. And if your original intent is that this is a conduit of supporting the network, this is the kind of fuel or gas payment that users need to submit in order to contribute to the knowledge graph. Like I get that it's about pure utility and it's price agnostic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so one thing is to design a protocol in a way that you expect it to behave in a way that it's not you who designed it to, to have an impact on either price or rewards, or some people call that visit APY. And we get a lot of questions from people interested in tokens as to how much they can expect to earn by holding a token, by running a node, etc. And we simply cannot provide that answer because the utility token has a value because it's being used, not because it's being used for speculative purposes. So let's say you are a network participant. No one can guarantee you that you will be uh, you know, earning certain dividends up to this and that percentage because it is not up to us to be giving you that kind of I know, expected earnings. It's the ecosystem of users that if they decide to use the network, and of course, by using the network, they would also need to be using the token, you are then uh, being a part of the network, uh, somehow eligible to receive certain rewards by providing your inputs. Like it's not manual work, of course, but it is kind of a, like a work and capital. You provide computational resources, you provide also some storage. You might consider DKG as a, as a global knowledge graph database. So you are providing a piece of that network to its users. But of course, although we got a lot of questions from the community as to, you know, you should uh, impact this, you should impact the price, you should do We're saying to them, we, we cannot, we simply cannot. And although I do understand that some projects benefit for succumbing to such requests, they benefit either by, you know, 
seeing the prices rise because of their actions. We don't see that this is a healthy behavior. And in the future, I think we believe that only utility coins, utility tokens will survive, not only because of the right behavior, but also because if you do remove the project team from picture, the project, the network still needs to I know, stay afloat, still needs to live. I think this is also one of the criteria. What happens if the team dies? What happens if, I don't know, a Vitalik Buterin dies? Is Ethereum still going to stay alive? So questions like these are the ultimate questions that decide whether or not a network is a, a utility-driven network or just a speculation-driven network. It's actually a nice transition into another kind of broader topic I wanted to address, which is that about uh, crypto market hype. And I guess also that ties into this idea of speculation and adoption and utility versus speculation. So I think that it's kind of impossible to deny at this point that at least currently, much of the crypto market is driven by hype. And oftentimes that hype, to me at least, feels disconnected from reality. So you have random tokens with zero utility that explode and make people millions of dollars. And of course, and that often results in a crashing a week later and losing people millions of dollars. And then you have people doing interesting things that pretty much nobody knows about. So I look at the organizations that you guys have worked with, and they include big names, BSI, GS1, Oracle, Home Depot, Walmart, the European Union that you've either worked directly with or you're associated with in some capacity. I uh, recently had a call with somebody from Google that you broadcast. And yet, these are partnerships that seemingly, I don't want to say should, but could generate a lot of hype around a project. Yet Origin Trail has, tell me if you disagree, but it has seems to have kind of flown under the radar and not really got wrapped up in the crypto hype and speculation cycle. And so I'm sort of fascinated by that from a journalistic perspective. So if the long-term goal here, I'm assuming it is, correct me if I'm wrong, if the long-term goal here is real-world adoption, then does the market hype cycle actually matter to a project as long as the adoption is there? Is hype, if it does come, just an added bonus to bring more people into the project? Or is it actually healthier in your perspective for a project to not get caught up in the short-term hype cycle and instead uh, have a long-term vision that focuses on building real-world clients, real-world adoption, and real-world users? I think the right direction is the direction you mentioned as a second venue, betting on real-world adoption. Although it takes time, I think it provides two things. It provides a basis for survival of the project, and secondly, it also provides validation. And this validation is not linked to speculation, it's linked to like very solid use cases. And uh, I think, although, you know, some people might even hate the word or the, the term long-term, but we still believe that long-term plays are the only plays that we should be betting on. Because, I mean, you've seen the disturbances in crypto and what happened to FTX and what happened to many other ventures, projects. And uh, we really wouldn't want to be part of that, not even remotely. Hype might be a good driver to an extent. And uh, I, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be shying away from hype that is technology-based hype because you need some form of encouragement, especially in the beginnings when you are still like developing the project. This is where the hype really helps you to 
wake up in the morning and then, you know, smile and keep on working. But you cannot live out of hype. Just um, you need clients, you need partners, you need support from standardization bodies outside of crypto. And all of these things are the real fuel for the subsistence of the of the project. And yeah, although the entire crypto is perhaps geared against such behavior, and admittedly, we've seen that happen to us as well, we still see that from time to time, also like majority of the crypto recognize what's important. But of course, these times then also pass as we enter new bull markets, as noise again becomes a dominant force in markets. But I think we're all like half full glass types of people were optimists that things will also play out well for the rest of the crypto and that people will realize what's important and uh, what can really withstand the long-term games within not only crypto, but outside crypto. Right now, crypto is still being dominated by a few players which monopolize awareness, they monopolize capital flows, and they also kind of are able to control the way certain mostly bigger projects behave. And these groups of people are dictating the rules of the game. Of course, we are always open to collaborate with anyone, but at the same time, we are wary of certain actors within the crypto space, which might not be providing benefits to our project long term. Yeah, but I think the future is bright. Anyhow, both for crypto and uh, or for Origin, we cannot complain. I mean, We've been up and running for five years. That's half a decade. We have grown both in terms of the size of the community, the size of the knowledge that is now being contained within the decentralized knowledge graph. The community is there. It's getting stronger. Builders are coming in. New applications are being proposed. New users, both enterprise and individuals. So if you look at the trend, it always goes up. So <laughs> we just need to maintain that trend. Yeah, no, it's nice when, when folks join for the even when you know you have these hype cycles, like if if they do join in the community, but they stay for adoption, right? Like that's with OT. So they'll hear about it perhaps because once, especially outsiders, I like those use cases most when it's uh, I mean like mainstream folks, you know, they come in and especially because it's uh, kind of we're always trying to be very plastic about uh, how technology is being used and try to communicate that the value of it and you know what can we really achieve with it and then people get um, they connect with these types of stories especially in those kind of more heating up cycles they'll be more of it out and then they come but they stay because they see the real value for themselves or for organizations or they see the adoption and they want to be a part of it or they want to build a little part of it or they want to run a part of the infrastructure or they want to be there as a helpful member to onboard new people. That's a perfect transition because we want to pivot and OT fam, I don't know if there's a name for the everybody. Oh, Tracers. Tracers, okay. I know that you have a strong community. So I hopped into the Origin Trail Telegram community chat and propositioned questions from some of the community members to see if they had anything, any burning questions that they had or topics we should address. And I have one question here, and it's actually, I think, the perfect question for me to ask next because I wanted, I feel like sometimes enterprise adoption, enterprise use cases can be hard to translate to the average person. Why should they care that an enterprise is adopting blockchain? So if we use supply chain as an example, I know that's one of the use cases that Origin Trail started with. 
Like, why does the, why should I care how the food gets to me as long as it gets to me? I think that's a mindset that a lot of consumers have when it comes to, like, they just want to see the final product in their hands. They want it to work well. They want to be able to eat it to be healthy, but they don't really care how it gets there. So there's a question there of why exactly does something like, if we're going to use the DKG as an example, how does that actually make a difference to the end user? How does that actually impact the end user? So I have a question here from Gus Chiggins, who asks, has the DKG helped prevent fraud in the real world? And how many patients have been given medicine that was tracked on the DKG? Yeah, that's a very good question. We have like very specific answers even to such questions. Origin Trail has been used by an NGO called um, World Federation of Hemophilia. World Federation of Hemophilia. Thank you, Tomasz. I always struggle to find words for that one. So World Federation of Hemophilia organizes donation to different countries in development, including some parts of India. Of course, India is not all undeveloped, but, you know, there are still places which are underdeveloped. And um, we helped this organization to establish transparent and uh, supply chain through which they'll be always able to see where a certain donated medicine has gone. And uh, they're particularly motivated to do so, to be able to control that because they have donor organizations which also want and uh, they also require proofs that certain medicine has been applied to the patient that is in need. And during our work with, I'm not going to name which specific section of supply chain in that particular case, because of the reason that there was a backbone the Trusted Knowledge Foundation used, so Origin Trail used to track and trace medicine. There was even a case where a whistleblower told on their bosses that they were like involved in something not that pretty, the version of medicine. And of course, this is one such example where, you know, a technology can really, if not directly impact and prevent fraud, it can be used to motivate people involved in such processes to, I don't know, tell their bosses to change their behavior uh, even. Yeah, so in the supply chains of healthcare, we got some very good results by uh, employing Origin Trail for greater transparency on that front. And I think to to the latest numbers, we got, uh, I think, around 30,000, so 30,000 patients were treated with traceable medicine. And the traceability has been established all the way from the donor organizations to the patient application. So when the drug is administered. So that's like a, something very specific and we're quite proud of that project. Yeah, and I think it's to your point as well, like how do people connect with the value that's being created in some of these deployments? I think it may vary to whom certain things are kind of closer to some. It might be, you know, they understand or they connect with uh, pharmaceutical or medicines or sustainable medicine field, others maybe more construction, some maybe food. And the one that I, I felt recently also a lot of folks just get is is really with AI, right? Because a lot of people have dabbled with chat GPT and mostly two questions arise. A is, am I going to lose my job? And B is, how can I trust this thing? And then boom, you know, it's very easy to kind of extend the importance of these types of technologies to exist because it, that is something that anyone can kind of uh, create a story around their job, around their situation where that could help or hurt them. 
And the, the new version of uh, the solutions built on top of Origin Trail, you can see when you try them, they're very humanized. Literally, you are able to chat with the DKG by using certain plugins. So let's say you want to check whether a medicine you are, is it's safe to be used by you with certain condition, with certain counterindication. You don't need to go and check the entire database. You simply ask the system a question, is this specific medicine safe? For my consumption, I have these and this, these kind of health uh, requirements. And the system literally chats with the DKG, providing you with, uh, with an information and then also, you know, the proven source of the information. So this is also kind of the next phase where we see that people are going to become much more aware how such technologies can bring benefits to them personally. Right, right. So beyond the kind of use case that you just given now, which is a current use case, one of the audience members, Milliam, has asked, what are some groundbreaking use cases you expect to be adopted in the next five to 10 years? I really see a lot of horizontal impact of artificial intelligence across all industries. So it's not going to be, you know, right now it may be, it's, it's more chat body. And I think you mentioned before as well, like you, a lot of it is maybe also hidden. That might expand even more, but all of it's going to have the very same needs. So we're going to see a lot of not just kind of retail or chatbot or kind of like FAQ on steroids types of applications of the tech, but also very enterprise or industry oriented things that have been worked on before, but really amplified with artificial intelligence, as well as more consumer-focused or retail or individual-focused things. And then the big one also is just like the whole kind of knowledge economy. It's We have knowledge-hungry agents out there with AI, and it's like a whole new industry being bootstrapped here with providing trusted, semantically enriched, high-quality knowledge inputs for AI. And there's going to be businesses that will transition towards becoming just like a trusted knowledge base instead of a service company. And also individuals will get involved in these types of things, I think, more and more. In the same fashion as the use of computers transition from the hands of like big corporations to the hands of households or like people, ordinary people using personal computers beginning back in the late 70s, in the same fashion, such technologies will essentially go from just Google being able to exploit the technology of knowledge graph to you personally being able to build your own kind of proverbial Google by you securing and taking control of the knowledge that you produce or that you can access either being produced by someone else or by, by yourself. Uh, you, Jonathan, musician, you're a musician, you would want to protect your copyright but at the same time, you don't want to just put all your music into a drawer and uh, not getting it exposed to the external world. You would still want to become your own Google, so controlling your own knowledge, but at the same time, you want to also control the streams of value being generated from your music. And I believe that such technologies that used to be only in the domain of big corporations are going to transition into the hands of every individual. So I have another question here from a username JP who asks, what are the biggest challenges that Origin Trail is currently facing when it comes to adoption? I think it's not just currently, I think it's across the board. We need to, so because we're not building a centralized solution, we always need to be balancing interests. 
So I'm going to give you an example. When we launched the newest version, the V6 DKG, we saw that there was a price spike in you know price per asset published. And um, such spikes might have been prohibitive for you know some of the use cases to take off on the DKG. And this is where you need to somehow work with the network participants to strike a balance between having all the node runnings being happy, being profitable. Mining, of course, it's a permissionless system. Anyone can enter and can kind of disrupt the balance. And on the other hand, have users being happy with the network because they can actually deploy use cases. And um, it's not a showstopper, but at the same time, it's something where we are at disadvantage as compared to, like, let's say, centralized companies. That said, decentralization again brings some other wonderful benefits, and you try to somehow take out those benefits, like the ones that we described before, and then have this unique positioning in the market. Other challenges with the adoption, I think the bear markets are very, actually very good for builders. There is not a lot of noise, also not a lot of scandals. I think right now for past few months, things have been quite pretty much quiet within the crypto space, especially compared to like uh, last year or the end of the last year. And I think this is also beneficial for teams like ours because we can really sit down. No one at our client meeting will ask us, have you seen what happened to FTX? Because that's already you know, a thing of a past. So I think bear markets are a good opportunity for builders. The one that I'm excited about more, but I see that that could kind of be going or can take off even more is really around the chat DKG. So it's like, uh, this is the framework we've done on how to use knowledge assets with different AI components. So I see a lot of potential for having more AI tools, you know, like we have Google with Vertex AI at the other time on, on our office hours or Azilis crew with their Milvus open source database. So like there's, I guess the, the one adoption kind of hurdle we have to jump over is having a nice ecosystem of these tools that can be, they knowledge assets are AI ready, but you still have to show how these different tools can kind of interact with them so that it starts to spark ideas. So I think that, uh, the effort we're doing within the chat DKG is very important because it will remove that barrier of having enough tools at your disposal to build out solutions much faster. So then it's going to be like, okay, I need, you know, here's, I have this data and I want to create trusted AI solution with it. Bam, bam, bam. I create knowledge assets like that. Here's, you know, I'll use this database. I'll use this AI tool here. I need, this is my public data. I can use open AI. Okay. This is my you know, sensitive data. I need something that's more enterprise grade. So you'll have this kind of like toolkit at your disposal. Maybe that's one hurdle that I see that we have to that we're addressing through chat DKG, but that it's big. Like if we can nail that really nice, uh, it's going to be a awesome thing. And I, I'm, I'm, I mean, it is going in the right direction. You know, you've seen the Googles are coming and, you know, Milvus is the probably most adopted open source vector database uh, right now. So there's a uh, important people are, are joining in and I'm excited to see more, more to come. I just have one more thing to add, because I remember something whilst Mash was talking. And I know Jonathan, you also met uh, our advisor, Dr. Bob Metcalf. He's the... Oh yeah, he had a good one. He's essentially can be considered as a, like a grandfather or father of internet. And he once stated, and I believe that was in New York at the same party where we met. And he stated that the biggest challenge or the biggest weakness of Origin Trail is that it's too complicated to explain to ordinary mortals. So this is perhaps one of the you know, most common challenges 
when you're trying to explain something that has not yet been in existence and you somehow use proxies to explain you know, what it can do. So I think this is one of the top three challenges that we're facing. So I guess as we, as we sign off here and we close out, what do you have to say about Origin Trail as some final words for us mere mortals and listeners that uh, may be interested in it or, or want to follow you or want to get involved or are still confused or do you have any like closing words or thoughts you want to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, the journey has been overall very exciting and the people that we've met, those who have joined the ecosystem and uh, really grasped the meaning of what we do. I think I can safely say that they started loving the project. They started enjoying the project. The community overall is very friendly. And also, it pretty much doesn't matter from which direction uh, you're coming from, you know, what kind of uh, vocational background you have. You can always find a very exciting use case within the Origin Trail ecosystem. And um, I think once you get hooked by the idea, you just kind of want to stick around, at least from what I've noticed so far. Also, there are some very important and exciting developments within Origin Trail department right now. The graph, the decentralized knowledge graph, is supposed to double in size in terms of the knowledge graph, in terms of the knowledge assets it carries within the next couple of uh, months. Some other exciting developments which are being kind of encapsulated under an umbrella called the V8 Origin Trail decentralized knowledge graph, which is going to upgrade the V6 with some very formidable V6 uh, capabilities. And all of this is coming already within this year. So it's a very good time for anyone to join the ecosystem. Yeah, I'd echo everything Giga said. And then just maybe as a zoom out, I, we are in the middle of, um, or in the early stages of a knowledge revolution. It's going to touch everyone one way or the other. So Origin Trail is your gateway to doing it the right way. So doing it the trusted way, doing it the verifiable way, doing it the in a way that ownership can be respected. So there's every venue is a good place to start, to start to learn, to start to get engaged, to start to get involved and uh, be on the winning side of the this wave that we're all hopefully catching. So exciting times ahead and um, yeah, by all means, uh, let's hang out. Giga, Tomas, thank you so much for joining us. Hope I got your names right. I was practicing before we started recording because I realized I was saying both of their names incorrectly with the American Ziga and Tomas, which I've learned today that's not the way you pronounce it. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's also late your time, so thank you for staying up and staying on late for us. It's been a fascinating conversation. I definitely learned a lot, and I'm excited to see sort of where the origin trail ecosystem evolves and continues to grow over the next, I guess, five to 10 years as the community member predicted. Maybe you just want to shout out where people can follow you on Twitter real quick. Yeah. Thanks for having us, by the way, as well. It was a lot of fun to have this conversation. And uh, yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised how kind of deep we got on some of the topics. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, to follow us, think origin trails, the, your number one. <laughs> number one thing that you can go to and then you'll find both of us there uh, as well well hey thanks for coming on it was an intriguing conversation i learned a lot more about the project and i'm especially interested to hear about how decentralized contributions to building ai applications will help to build a better world i found that 
quite enlightening. I'd never really considered that aspect of the project or AI in general. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the team grows. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Plenty of fun ahead and hope to see you around, both of you. The Agenda is hosted and produced by me, Ray Salmond. And by me, Jonathan DeYoung. You can listen and subscribe to The Agenda at cointelegraph.com podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and leave a review. You can find me on Twitter at Horace Hughes, H-O-R-U-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and just about everywhere else at MadDopeMatic. That's M-A-D-D-O-P-E-M-A-D-I-C. Be sure to follow Cointelegraph on Twitter and Instagram at Cointelegraph. Cointelegraph.